Well, welcome everybody. Um, one of my teachers, when he welcomes people, he says, it's well that you have come. Welcome. And, and I think that um, there's a lot of truth to that because just showing up at a retreat like this, no matter what your experience is, just being here um, shows that uh, you have some curiosity about something that you, um, maybe there's something about life the way it is that doesn't quite seem like it has its full potential as being reached or, or something, something you're searching for. So uh, it's well that you have all come to this retreat and it's well for those who live here that they live in this space. So before I start, I would like to um, dedicate this retreat to a, a group, a large group, and an individual. Um, an individual who's been coming to our beginners uh, or new to practice class on a regular basis for about the last, I'd say, eight to nine months, who is really in the final stages of, of life. And um, he had some major health challenges, and, and now it's coming to an end. And um, so that's one, his name is Eric. And uh, the other is um, the inmates that, um, particularly the ones that we, Joe and I have worked with over the last 13 years, but uh, I was thinking really, it, it's not limited to them, it's really to all imprisoned beings. Of course, we could fall into that category as well. But literally imprisoned beings, um, those who are there for good reason, those who are there um, for political reasons um, or social reasons, those who are there because of justice systems that are prejudiced against people of color, uh, because I, I was thinking that who knows dukkha, who knows suffering more than Eric, really? He has some huge challenges. And the inmates, they really know suffering. And that's a bit about what we're going to be talking about today. So when Bob left off on the Buddha's adventure of becoming enlightened. Um, uh, I'm going to take it a little further because he, uh, after he became enlightened, he wasn't sure that he wanted to teach. He, he, he wasn't sure that people could really understand what it was that he came upon during those days of sitting under the Bodhi tree. And so he he decided uh, that he might not teach. Maybe he would just go sit in a cave somewhere and just uh, uh, live with the realizations that he had. And uh, it said that the, the gods, the devas, uh, particularly I think it was the Brahmin deva who, who said, basically you must teach. Uh, he was afraid that it was too complex and the Brahmin teacher said, uh, maybe there are some of those who just have a little dust in their eyes. And they could, they could get this. They could understand this. 
He was a reluctant teacher, and I can identify with that. Um, he um, decided then to find the ascetics, the, the, the men who were his cohorts. Test one, two. It was on. Yeah. It wasn't on before? Oh, sorry. I was hearing fine. Yeah. So was I. Um, so, um, so he decided to go look for the ascetics that he uh, had left when he decided it was time to stop and to nourish his body and to find sort of a more balanced. He needed the body, and we all need our bodies in which to practice. And so uh, he went from Bodhgaya, where the Bodhi tree is, uh, and the Ganges plain up to Varanasi. And we've had the privilege of being in India, and it's, it's beautiful territory. It's wet. Uh, it's, um, it was the seat, really, of all the elaborate Hindu practices of the time, uh, lots of rituals and wild things going on still in Varanasi. So um, he caught up with the um, ascetics, but before he got there, uh, on the road there, somebody noted, one of, a, a fellow traveler, there were lots of people traveling, and uh, it was common in those days, as you aged, to, to kind of go and seek. So a seeker saw him and thought, wow, this guy looks, I don't know, something about him, the way he's walking, uh, whatever it is, something about him looks like he's maybe learn something. So he approached the Buddha and he said, the story goes, he said, uh, well, you, you look like you know, you've uh, gained some knowledge or something. Who, who is your teacher? And it's said that the Buddha's reply to that was, well, uh, I am my teacher and I am a fully realized Buddha. So you, know, you can imagine, you know, uh, this guy, can, I can kind of imagine him going, or, uh, and, um, and so uh, he just um, noticed that, heard what he said, and left, thinking that this was coming out of some egoic place. You know, this guy, okay, he thinks he's really something. He really was something. So um, he worked his way back, met his friends, and uh, that's when he gave the Dhammachakabhavatana Sutta. That's the turning of the Dharma wheel. All in one word, that is, by the way. In, in Pali, it's just these run-on words that, that sometimes it takes us a paragraph to, um, to decipher. So he gave that sutta, and it said that one of the men there, of the five, Kodanya, um, got it and was enlightened after that the talk. Wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> if anybody has that experience, let me know. I'd, I, I um, and, and, and so he, he, he was enlightened, and what he got was very simple, really, but on a deep level, that it's the nature of all things arise that arise to pass. That's it. Leading to enlightenment. Huh.
So I'm impressed with the fact that the Buddha must have figured out after he met this other holy man on the, on the path to Varanasi that uh, he decided maybe he'd better think about a different way to present this. Uh, and so uh, he uh, decided that maybe he had better pick something that we can relate to a little more than just saying he's his own teacher and he's fully enlightened. And uh, that's where um, the Four Noble Truths came because we can relate to dukkha, suffering. So the Four Noble Truths, suffering, its cause, its cessation, and the path that leads to cessation. So I, uh, I'd like to ask a question. Um, has anybody here experienced dukkha in the last year? <laughs> Raise your hand if you have. Oh, there's some people who haven't. There's some people who haven't experienced dukkha. For, I'll raise two hands for the ones who haven't. Yeah, okay. Um, is there anybody who has experienced dukkha? Let's make it easier. Let's make it easier so you don't have to raise your hand as much. Is there anybody who hasn't experienced dukkha uh, in the last month? Okay, okay, good. Is there anybody who hasn't experienced dukkha on this retreat? Okay, all right, no, good, uh, don't be shy, hey. All right. So I guess he picked something that we can relate to. I guess that's the point, huh? I've experienced dukkha on this retreat. I experienced dukkha about giving this talk. Interesting. I experience dukkha because I am used to sort of dharmets, you know, small dharma talks, like a dharma dialogue almost, you know. And so this is like an hour. Whoa, that's a lot, you know. And so, um, so you know, that's sort of the surface reason why I experience dukkha. But when we experience dukkha, we're asked to go a little further with this, that there is a, there's a cause. Hmm. And that cause, at its really essential, boiled down level, is a form of attachment or identification. The self arising. And mine did. I was clear on that. Pretty, pretty largely. I could really notice it. And the larger the self arises and we are clinging to something in the form of attachment or identification, the more we suffer. So I have two areas that I suffer in. When I have to give a talk like this, it's a little unusual for me. Yeah, the self arises, it does. So I, I work with that, which is what the Buddha asked us to do. And there's another place where I suffer, and that is uh, I am an intrepid softball player. I, uh, I, I love the sport. I've played since I was five years old. My father was a softball player, so I have a lot of conditioning around performance around that. And I still play at 70, and I play in tournaments, and I, I'm into it big time. I love it. 
I'd love it. And sometimes I suffer around it too, because as you can tell, there's, a, there's some attachment there. There's a little ego there. Identify with it there. I'm a softball player. I, I. So to the extent that I have a personality that develops around being a ball player or uh, having to give a Dharma talk, having to be a certain way when I give this Dharma talk, something called becoming. I want, I want to be, I want to present it clearly. I want to, to do a good job. I want it to be engaging. I want, I want, I, I. Uh, to, that, to the extent that I'm stuck there, I will suffer. And that's really what the Buddha was saying. That's the teaching, teaching of suffering and at its essence, the cause. So it's not just about suffering. It's really about transcending. So I, I remember I heard that word a lot before I really got a sense of what does that mean? What is transcending? So I decided to, to actually look it up. And I think I understood it, but I wanted to look it up in the dictionary. So uh, the definition is to go beyond a field of activity or conceptual sphere. To go beyond a field of activity or conceptual sphere. And I'll come back to that. But the etymology, which is kind of the study of words, not entomology, which is the study of bugs. I remember that because ant sounds like ant. And I can, <laughs> that's my way of remembering that. So etymology, the etymology is trans, which means across or through and skandari, which means to climb. So it means to climb across or climb through. So I like that because that's, that's more visual to me than um, to go beyond a field of activity or conceptual sphere. But I like those two things because to go beyond a field of activity, what are fields of activity? We see, we smell, we taste, we hear, we feel, we think, we sense. Those are fields of activity in the human endeavor, right? So to go, to climb through those, to not just accept them as what they seem to be when we sort of skim through our experiences and don't go deeply and don't have the skills or the tools to really examine our experience. And then I like the other one, too, uh, because it talks about uh, uh, to uh, transcend our conceptual uh, experience, or to go beyond our conceptual sphere. Because, boy, do we have lots of concepts, huh? I mean, you know, our culture inoculates us with a set of concepts that we take to be solid and real and you know, all you have to do is travel to a different part of the world and you realize that a lot of these concepts that we live by, that we accept as true and real and solid, don't apply to other cultures. So where's, where's the truth in those? So to go beyond, to look more deeply and see when we're stuck in concept or we're not seeing clearly 
in the way we're experiencing life. And Jill talked about experiencing life through our sense gates. So we can start to ask ourselves, is this world of form and thoughts and feelings, is it solid? Is it true? Is it real? So through, through this um, using of our experience of dukkha, of unsatisfactoriness, of, it, of life's incapability of satisfying us, uh, of stress, of anxiety, of worry, using our awareness of that to start to deeply look into our experience. And to ask, what about this self? You know, what is that? You know, what is, is that constructed too? Or is there something really a solid, steady self? So all of this speaks to two different ways of looking at the world, and they're both important. And one does not negate the other. And that is our conventional way of experiencing our world. And uh, looking at things in a little more ultimate sense. Now, we need the conventional world, right? I mean, you know, we have our names, we have our phone numbers, we have our passwords. I got lots of passwords. Uh, we have all of these things that sort of, we have our house and our address, and we have our spouses or significant others or friends, or, you know, we have, we have all these things that we um, have an identity around. And we need that. I mean, to function in our society, we, we need that, right? So we, we can't get rid of that. It's not about getting rid of that. But when we become too identified with our conventional ways of seeing reality, we, we can get stuck. And so we need to sort of maybe broaden the view a little bit and start to look a little more deeply and see if some of these um, some of these perceptions that we have of the world around us are really, uh, on an ultimate sense, are they true? So there's the Four Noble Truths. And, you know, this is, I would love to not go into detail about the aspects of the Four Noble Truths, but I, I think I have to. I just think I have to. I, I want to keep it alive, but I, I think I have to because I think the teachings are so um, precise and they're so helpful. So uh, bear with me a little bit now when we get into a little bit of the detail. So I like to look at the Four Noble Truths as a framework for practice and a framework for life. And so I have really done my best to frame my experience, particularly when I'm suffering, but really a lot of my experience within the Four Noble Truths. 
And in case you think that this is just some sort of basic study that you can kind of, once you learn it, then, hey, you got that down. Now let's move to the real teachings. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the monastics who I, we just love to spend time with, Ajahn Sumedho, I mean, that's all he talks about. It's always framed in the framework of the Four Noble Truths, always. So the Pali words for the, uh, the noble truths is Arya Satcha. And Satcha uh, is uh, truth. And Arya is an interesting word because it, it, uh, it, it's the same word that Arahant comes from. Uh, it's, it's the, it, it can be a noun, the noble ones. But it's also being used here as and I'm, I don't know if it's, it's, it's almost got some action to it, but ennobling truths. What's the part of speech that that is? Is that an adjective or an adverb? It's got some action in it, I think, ennobling truths. So maybe it's more like an adverb. I forget that. That was so long ago when we had to label our, our speech. So... It can be used either way. So I, I kind of like the ennobling. I like that because it's really our, we can be ennobled by following these truths. So what I want to talk about is um, that each of the Four Noble Truths has three aspects. And I'm going to be dwelling mostly on the first three. But they have three parts. And a lot of us are, are not aware of that. So the first part is just the statement. There is suffering. There is a cause of suffering. And there is the cessation of suffering. It's just the statement. The Pali word for that is pariyati. The second is patipati. I like that. It's like the way that sounds. Uh, and that's that this the truth should be worked with should be put into practice this is the path this is what we're all on we're working with these truths the path and then the third is pariweda which is that we have worked with it and we we get it now that doesn't mean that we're done and that doesn't mean that from now on we get it. That means maybe we just got it for this particular issue. It could mean that we get it from now on, and I hope may it be so. But uh, it really just means that we've worked with it. We've acknowledged it. There is suffering. We uh, have worked to understand it, and we understand it. So there's one other thing. And that is that each truth has sort of a, a recommendation or a behavior or an action that it calls for. And there's a word. So when we say suffering should be the, uh, the second part, the pati pati, it's understood. There is suffering. Suffering should be understood. 
suffering has been understood. Okay? The second one, the cause, there is a cause of suffering. That cause should be abandoned is the word, but we can say let go of. That cause should be let go of. So we're working on letting go. The cause has been let go of. So, so it's, uh, the, the Pali word for that I just found out is gati. That's asking for a response or an action based on the truth, gati. And then the third one is there is the possibility of cessation. There is the cessation of suffering. That should be realized. And that's an interesting one because that to me is a little more subtle. That takes maybe a little uh, more attention to realize the cessation. So there is a possibility of cessation. Cessation should be realized. Cessation has been realized. So there's an action and three parts to each noble truth. Okay, so then we have the truths. There is suffering. Okay, Jill, we're going to do this. Do you want to? So we, we're going to, when we go to the monastery, part of their morning practice is they chant, they chant uh, the, the suttas. They chant the, the Dhamma Chaka Pawatana Sutta in, often in its entirety. And they talk, they, it's in great detail, and it's in Pali and in English. Uh, would you like to hear it in Pali and English, or would you like to hear it in English? Pali's hard, by the way, but how, what, what's your thoughts? Twice, both. Okay, I saw one, okay. Is this fair? Yeah, this is, one person said it, it's fair. Okay. So, so uh, Jill's actually quite good at this. So we'll start with Mayantam, okay. Mayantam Dhamman Suttawa Ewam Janama Having heard the teaching, we know this. Yata Vidukkha, birth is Dukkha. Jara Vidukkha, aging is Dukkha. Marana Vidukkha, and death is Dukkha. Soka Parideva Dukkha Domana Sapuyasapayati Dukkha Sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair are Dukkha Apiyehi Dukkha Sampayogo Dukkha Associating with the disliked is Dukkha Piehi vipaya go dukkha, separation from the delight is dukkha. Yam pi cham na lahati tam pi dukkham, not attaining one's wishes is dukkha. Sankirtena panna kupadana kanda dukkha. In brief, the five focuses of the grasping mind are dukkha. Thank you. That's hard, huh? How about that word, panakupanudanakanda dukkha? That's the five focuses of the grasping mind are dukkha. So we're hearing 
birth, aging, death, sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair, association with the disliked. Mm, we know that one, huh? Is dukkha. Separation from the liked. That's dukkha. Loss is dukkha. Not attaining one wishes is dukkha. Get that one. In brief, the five focuses of the grasping mind are dukkha. So what's that? So that speaks to a teaching of the, the, the khandas or skandhas in Sanskrit and Pali, the khandas. And it's a way of deconstructing the self. So there in the very first noble truth, it's addressing that in, in brief, in summary, uh, attachment to the self is really kind of at the heart of dukkha. And so it's sort of a way of deconstructing the self by breaking it into five categories, the form, perceptions, which are just memories and labels and words, uh, uh, Vedana, feeling, tones, um, mental constructs, and consciousness itself, which just means when you first register at a sense gate, ah, light. But before even the word light comes, just that it's, you know that you're having that connection. So you don't have to remember any of those. So I have a, I have a task for you. Some of you probably can't see this, but what is that? Can you even tell? Mm, yeah, okay, good. What's this? You see that? Yeah, here. Yeah. Spring. Yeah. Okay, good. Yeah, cartridge, huh? Oh, what's that? Okay. So, are any of these things pen? Not really. They're really not pen. They're components. They're constructed. Uh, they're constructs. So, you know, when we put it together, I've destroyed more ten pens doing this. Um, <laughs> when we put it together, then it's pen, huh? We can agree with that. But isn't that a concept? Because it's really made of its component parts. And so if one of those component parts isn't there, then it's really not pen. It's certainly not a functioning pen. It's not a full whole pen. And it's interesting because if any one of these parts either gets lost or breaks, then it's really it's not, it's not a, a pen anymore. You, you, usually we toss it. It doesn't work anymore. Or if the cartridge changes and runs out of ink, that's time for a new one unless it has a replaceable cartridge. So it's true with these selves of ours too is really what the Buddha is saying. Is we're constructed too. And when we really start to look deeply, um, What's really there that isn't changing? So these, this chant goes on to talk about how all of these aspects of the self, 
the form, that's the body, the thoughts, the feelings, all of those things um, are impermanent. They all change. We know that, right? I know my form's changed. A little fuller in here, a little less muscular here, a lot less hair here. Um, and, and I think all of us are, are changing, right? I mean, one way or another, we can notice that. We're all aging. We're, not, we're certainly not the babies we were born to be. So when any of those components change, then um, since what we're calling the self is sort of dependent upon the conglomerate of these, then um, what happens to the self? Where is the self? What is the self? It's really a construct. And yet, as what I said before, it's, it's helpful, isn't it, to, to, have, to sort of know what the self is. We can't really disassemble the self until we kind of have a sense of ourselves. That's sort of the paradox. The kid, kids are born with a, 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 a fairly loose sense of themselves, you know, and that forms over time. And if, it, if we become healthy selves, um, then we can start to look at deconstructing. But if, this, if the self really never forms in a healthy way, then it's pretty hard to deconstruct it. It can be, it can be uh, devastating, actually. So where I really see myself arise and pass using different words than form, feeling, perception, is in my body, my thoughts, and my emotions. That's where I, that's where I get hooked and start to feel uh, this sense of self. And... Um, so then I need to have a way to really notice when I'm hooked. And I find that I can bring awareness to thoughts if I sort of notice where they arise. And, and I, I can do that. I get lost in thoughts like everybody, but I can do that. I think emotions are really, that's where I really get hooked on feelings, on particularly uncomfortable feelings. And so my way of really relating to that is to just move into the body with it. Just to get out of the head, don't analyze it, don't figure it out, but as Jill used the words, it's like this. Anger is like this. Anxiety, that I was feeling some anxiety today, it's just like this. And when I do that, when I'm able to move into the body, and really explore in the way that we're calming and bringing our awareness to our experience in that way that we're learning, I start to notice something about that. I notice that it has sort of a vibratory aspect to it. It sort of buzzes and flows and undulates and it's not entirely pleasant. And um, that if I can open to it and accept it, and allow for it, it, um, it eventually ends. Now, it might come back shortly after, but it ends. 
So maybe this is what Kadanya got. You know, it's the nature of all conditioned experience that it arises and it passes. So the second noble truth starts to just elucidate uh, the causes of suffering. And um, it's called craving. It's tangha is the, uh, the Pali word, and that literally means thirst. So it's, it's, a, it's a strong desire. So it, to me, it's, it's a desire where there's already a bit of identification. If it's going to cause suffering, then there's already a bit of self starting to move into that desire. And in fact, Ajahn Sumedho, who is the chief um, Ajahn Chah disciple in the Western tradition, a, 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 an American-born monk who taught in, in England until he retired and taught in the Bay Area too. Um, he says it's attachment to desire that's the cause of suffering. I mean, we have desires, right? I mean, if we didn't have desires, we wouldn't live. We have the desire to eat. That's a healthy desire. It can become an unhealthy desire if we attach to it in a way that uh, drives us either to eat too much or to not eat enough. An aversion or an, an, an attachment that's either in the form of aversion or a strong craving, a clinging. So, tangha, craving. So they tell, there are classically three forms of craving. There's craving for sense pleasures. That's pleasant sights, sounds, touches, smells, body sensations, thoughts, and emotions. And again, uh, experiencing those is not a bad thing. It's really important to understand that. This is not about not having pleasure. It's about when we form this identity, when we when we have to have it or we can't stand it. So that, again, that moves to the, the clinging piece of the second noble truth. So there are um, four forms, four ways in which we cling. We cling to sense pleasures. We cling to uh, a sense of self. We cling to views and opinions, our views and opinions. Anybody ever experience clinging to your views and opinions? Get in a good political talk with somebody who totally disagrees with you? Uh, and, you know, you... Uh. And to rites and rituals, which is really just the conventions of our culture. We cling to those. I mean, we, we accept those as true. We oftentimes don't really examine them. And as I mentioned, when you leave the country, you notice those. So what's, what are we asked to do? We're asked to notice that and then to let go. So how do you let go? That's really important. That took me a while to understand how you let go. So you, you can let go by... Um, getting rid of, but then didn't I just, isn't that just a form of suffering? 
That's aversion, right? That's a form of suffering. You can let go um, in various ways. So you could let go by getting rid of it. <laughs> oh, error. <laughs> um, or you can let go by just sort of loosening the grip. Uh, that's a different kind of letting go. That's a let go that works a lot better for me. It's gentle. And it's not a getting rid of because getting rid of is just puts us right back into the same dilemma, right? So gentle, just loosening the grip. Loosening the grip, letting go of the desire and craving for something and letting go of the aversion, the pushing away, the resistance that we have. I like to think of, you know, a resistor uh, in, in electrical circuits causes heat. A, to a toaster is a big resistor is really what it is. So when we resist, we create heat, friction. Yeah, so it's literally releasing, you know, letting go. So we need to learn to let go. And the third noble truth is that there is cessation. Oh, thank God. Otherwise, it would be really bleak, wouldn't it? Yeah, it would be tough. And that's, I think that's where a lot of people who know nothing about Buddhism or very little think it's sort of a dismal practice. But it's not dismal at all. At all. It's brilliant. So this is to be realized. Hmm. So to be realized, and so I, what I mentioned before is that to realize something is, is, it's like I get the sense of it that it's, that it's there, but we haven't realized it. And I think that that's really true. We have lots of moments of cessation. So I'm going to purposely slow down my speech. So maybe it's refreshing for you to not have to listen to this voice. And maybe when I pause, The mind has a few moments of, oh. And then the mind goes, when's he going to talk again? <laughs> uh, so the gaps, we can notice the gaps in sound. It doesn't have to be complete silence. We can know the gaps in thoughts. There are gaps in thoughts, even though sometimes it feels so relentless. Our obsessions, 
And Joseph the other day asked the question because I was cueing him into the Gons. So I was a radiologist in my former life and started teaching Dharma because I wanted to chase the big bucks. <laughs> and um, and uh, I, um, uh, what I noticed in radiology, and I think there was a general agreement amongst my, my cohorts, that it's much harder to notice the absence of something than the presence of something. So if you're looking at a chest x-ray, something simple, and the lungs look black, and there's a white tumor there, there are very few radiologists that would miss that. But if you're looking at a chest x-ray, and there's the black lungs, and there's the white ribs coming across, and curling around, you're kind of seeing the third dimension because you know that that's the way the anatomy is. And one of those ribs, particularly the one that maybe is coming around the front, just on the side, where you're not really seeing it on FOSS, you're seeing it kind of tangentially, there's no rib there. It's eroded, it's gone. Something has chewed it up, an infection or a tumor or something. Very easy to miss that. <clears throat> so we pay a lot of attention to the arisings of things, but we often miss the passing of things. And if that's what Kadanya realized when he became enlightened, maybe it's something we should pay attention to. Right? I mean, it's important. And it's such a relief too. It's particularly a relief when something unpleasant passes. Maybe it's a little saddening when something pleasant passes, if you're attached to it. So Ajahn Chah said, if we let go a little, we'll find a little peace. If we let go a lot, we'll find a lot of peace. And if we let go completely, we'll find complete peace. You could substitute freedom or another word if that works for you. So I have been I've had some um, computer online dukkha lately. Anybody relate to that? When the devices fail and, you know, we're, oh my God, you know, all my financial data is gone. <laughs> yeah, but not that this time, but just slow, really slow. I mean, really slow. I live up in the mountains and so it's normally not that fast. Now it's really slow. So I have, I have downloaded a, um, a meter, you know, that tells me my download speed, you know, so it starts like this and, and, and actually it starts like this. And, and then when I, you know, when I hit that thing and ping it, okay, 2.8, Okay. So I decided we need self meters. We need a way to notice when the self is arising. Wouldn't it be nice to have a little self-a-meter? <laughs> kind of, yeah, you could just check it. Instead of checking your cell phone. <laughs> Pretty good. No self, hey. 
Of course, you could get attached to that too. But so, so here's my here's my sense of the self meter. Okay. So I'm sitting here. Hmm. Left knee, a little sore. <laughs> I can just be with it. Oh, it still hurts. <laughs> I got a ball game tomorrow. I wonder if I'm going to be able to play. <laughs> this thing's been bugging me a lot lately. I, I may have to go see, get a doctor. Hmm. I hate general anesthesia. <laughs> <laughs> can just see it. I just, you know, the rehab is going to be terrible. I, I, oh, oh. Mm. Mm. Still hurts. <laughs> <laughs> So that's our practice. That, that's really our practice. Our practice is to pay attention, to catch it whenever we catch it. Lots of times it's full blown before we catch it, but that's okay. We can, we can get stuck because we're all gonna, because we're human and we're not realized yet. And, and when we notice that we're hooked, as Pema Chodron likes to use the term, we're hooked. We've been caught by aversion or greed or delusion or whatever, to just, ah, okay, I can let this go. I can let this go. That doesn't mean that uh, there won't be a new arising. I like to think of it as a new arising rather than that same old thing coming back again. It's just a new arising and it has its life too. It's a life, it's a life that will arise and it will pass. So can we bear with, you know, the, the monks like to talk about that. Can we bear with our experience? And that, that doesn't mean like a grizzly, uh, grit your teeth and bear with it. It means can we be with it, with our experience, for long enough to notice its nature. We're not going to try and get rid of it. We're just going to be with it and let nature do its thing. Nature is of the nature to change. You see it outside. Look at all the leaves that came down. The stream that's running now that five days ago was silent. So can we just be with our experience, oftentimes moving into the body to do it? And bear with it and allow nature to take its course. So it's that self. Not, it's not the enemy because we need that self. It's the moving around thing that we use to negotiate our world. But in life, 
I just like to ask the question, am I suffering? When Sylvia mentioned collecting leaves and making an altar, um, uh, you know, am I, am I attached? Well, what's the question to ask? Am I suffering? Is this causing suffering? I don't think it did. I didn't get the sense it did at all. So that's the answer. No. If you can really be sensitive and get more and more sensitive to when that self, that attachment, that identity forms, then you'll know. You'll know when you're attached. You'll get better and better and better at it. it the big ones are easy. The Dharma talks and the softball. I use softball because it's just great. It's a performance. You know, you're out there in front of all your peers. You know, you, you, you're judged by yourself and by others. It's a great place to practice watching the self arise and pass. And the best thing that I can do when I'm batting and I'm in the field is to just be present. Just to feel my body. To be present. Get the thinking part out of the way. Okay, if it comes to me, I've got to go to second, then to first. Blah, blah, blah. Get, get that out of there and just be present in the body. And I'll argue that that's the best way that we can deal with dukkha too, is to just be present <laughs> in the body. So there is a fourth noble truth, and I'm just going to... I'm just not going to spend too much on that at all. So there's basically three teachings. There's three categories. There's the wisdom practices, the um, integrity practices, I like to call it. Some people, virtue, um, and the meditation practices. And um, they're all the way we engender all of this cessation the way that we can start to see cessation, these mini nirvanas, these cessations. And, you know, just understanding that our actions have results and we live with those results based on our actions and that the Four Noble Truths, understanding this on a deep basis, that's the wisdom side. The virtue side is the precepts we took and doing your best to work a livelihood that causes no harm and using speech that's kind and harmless. And the meditation part of mindfulness, which we've certainly been working with, and concentration and effort. And then when we meditate and we start to gain some insights, woof, right back up to the wisdom piece again. So then we have more wisdom. And then we bring that to our integrity. So they all feed each other. And Bob, in one form of an, or another, is going to talk about that tomorrow. Or another. <laughs> or another. More another than, a, than one form. So I guess in summary, what I'd like to just say is that I'm encouraging you to use suffering, its cause, its end, in the path, use it as a way to examine your experience. Use it as a way to look at your 
emotional life, your emotional experience, your thinking experience, your embodied experiences. And just notice if you think there is suffering. And at, at first, maybe you just won't notice that there's any suffering. And that's okay, but just keep noticing. Because as we get more and more sensitive, we realize that suffering is our teacher. It's our best teacher. It's not easy, but it's a teacher. And that's really what the Buddha was pointing towards. Suffering is our teacher. To open to it. Ajahn Sumedho, in one of his books, said, what if, or maybe it was a talk, he said, what if, you know, we don't really quite know how to interpret some of these suttas exactly. What if the sutta really says suffering should be welcomed? Hmm. Yeah. So I encourage you to use these noble truths, ennobling truths, to examine your experience and be patient. And um, over time, it's been my experience that we become more and more sensitive to our own suffering and the end of our own suffering. So I offer this for your reflection. So let's just take a moment to settle lots of words and just appreciate the silence. Let the mind empty. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.